My name is Mikhail Saburov, and this is the Russian Resistance Podcast. Our podcast is produced by Paper Paper, an independent media company from St. Petersburg that has been reporting on the war in Ukraine despite the government repressions. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss the future episodes and consider donating to support our work. The link is in the description. Resistance may come in many shapes and forms. My today's guest is quite different from everyone I've spoken to so far. Andrei Shostakov used to be a police officer in a little town of Nyrungri, Yakutia. He's also a Minister of Internal Affairs veteran. Despite having worked for the government for many years, today he's undoubtedly a part of the resistance. I worked as a juvenile officer for the last three and a half years, and despite being a person with attitude, I was in good books. I could do things other officers didn't have the skills for. Let's be honest, the police use a point system. The department's rankings improve among other departments within the subject, administrative division in Russia, if the department solves a certain crime under a certain article. For instance, child abuse or second time selling alcohol to a minor. These are rarer articles, and I've heard of only two cases registered in Yakutia over the past seven years. One of them was identified by me. All this time, my colleagues used to work longer hours and stay late when I would leave an hour early. Yet, in terms of efficiency, I was the top performer. I'm, in fact, a juvenile inspector, a police officer in Russia, but uh, elsewhere, I'd be considered a social worker. I mainly worked with social institutions, uh, guardianship organizations and rehabilitation centers for minors. Andrei told me he never voted for Putin, but he quite sympathized with the right-wing ideas and supported nationalists, believing they're the only force capable of overthrowing the regime. Back then, many right-wing opposition leaders were getting imprisoned and persecuted. Andrei changed his political views in 2018. He filed a lawsuit against his employer for violating labor rights and came across an online community called Police Ombudsman. The community was run by an ex-police officer, Vladimir Vorantsov, who used it as a platform to publish materials related to protecting police officers' rights and victims of police brutality. In 2020, Vladimir was sentenced to five years in prison. He claims his case is nothing but the government's revenge for his human rights work. The breaking point for me was the year 2018. That's when I started drawing information from the police ombudsman group. I became interested, watched investigations on corruption in the Russian government. I was hooked. I looked through all the videos from the previous five years. The Anti-Corruption Foundation, ACF, a non-profit organization established by Alexei Navalny, blew my mind. I totally disagree with Navalny on what Russia's future should look like. Still, I couldn't be derailed once I stepped onto this path, becoming subsequently unreliable from the state's point of view. I thought I shouldn't be working in police, not with this opinion, as this work is seen as helping the state, helping in a way that involves guarding the regime, protecting the authorities against ordinary people by suppressing their freedom and independence. It's very common amongst the opposition to stereotype all police officers as the enemy, which is not true. As a son of an ex-police officer who served for 25 years, I know for a fact that many take on the job with positive intentions, 
fighting crime, and protecting others? Does it come with an expected conformism to the government political agenda? Now more than ever. And yet, dehumanizing someone on the basis of their job means feeding into the ever-growing hatred in Russian society today, which is exactly what the regime needs to maintain power. Plus, as Andrei told me, even the basic conformism amongst the authorities becomes less and less widespread. My office turned into a relaxation point where opposition gathered. Other officers, friends, including lieutenant colonel, who have a similar mentality and mindset, some even more positional than me. I don't know the exact number, but believe me, there are loads of them. I can't speak for other regions, though. I'm from the Russian Far East, and I always used to say that if a revolution occurred in Russia, that's where it would start. Because Primorsky Krai, Khabarovsk and Yakutia are the primary drivers of hatred towards Moscow. Many Yakuts explicitly state that they're waiting for the day when the government goes down, likewise in Khabarovsk and uh, Primorsky Krai. Yakutia is where people tend to vote against United Russia, against Putin, with a protest candidate always picking up enough votes. We've got two opposition deputies elected, meaning United Russia lost it, coming in third non-withstanding vote-rigging. United Russia is the largest political party in the country. Members of the party hold the majority in the Russian government body and always support the laws put forward by the executive branch and personally Putin. If they hold the majority, they must be elected by the people time and time again. Well, according to a recent research of a group of independent election monitors, during the 2021 elections across Russia, around 12 million votes were added in a so-called ballot stuffing, guaranteeing that the party acquires the constitutional majority. So, yes, a lot of people, not just police officers, law enforcement officials in, in general, I'm in touch with many of them, and a great many people share the same views as I do. They, however, tell me, you see, I'm a family man. It's too much of a risk for me. I, I have no children, so I don't have that risk. I had a common-law wife who stayed in Russia. I wasn't afraid, but others are. They say, what can I prove with this, with acting the same way as you do? Be fined? Get fired? Lose my pension? In 2021, a mole at the ACF leaked the entire database with personal details of everyone in smart voting, had they submitted their phone number and mailing address. The leaked data entered FSB, the Ministry of Interior Affairs. If the mailing address matched the one registered on Gosuslugi, Russian Public Services portal, police officers went into it. That person would be visited within a year, checked up on, asked to sign some papers and warned against participating in rallies and protests. Smart voting is a tactical voting strategy introduced by Alexei Navalny and his team. The idea is for the masses to choose an oppositional candidate who has the best chance of defeating a pro-government candidate and vote for them at the last possible moment. Hence, minimizing a chance of rigging the election. Smart voting is probably the only way voters can influence regional and federal elections today and reduce the number of pro-Putin politicians. The police ombudsman posted that there were police and law enforcement officers in this database. The online community informed 
that they'd be cleared if they had registered in smart voting or joined the ACF and submitted their postal details. I knew they'd probably come after me at the end of the year. Anyway, I'd been aware that my colleagues were walking around the town, checking on people who joined the smart voting project. Actually, I was ready I'd be told I got caught up as an unreliable employee. I was going to retire in the summer of 2021 regardless. I just didn't want to leave the former boss, my friend, alone as he wouldn't be able to work without me. So I was waiting for him to transfer to another location before applying for retirement. But there came a moment when an HR colleague approached me and said that I, together with two other officers, was subscribed to some extremist material. She said, we can't save you, you'd better quit yourself, and almost burst into tears. I responded, that's okay, I was expecting this, waiting when you'd come. Besides, I'd already prepared a request for retirement. The file was on my desktop, and all I had to do was to print it and sign it. I warned my friends that if I left the police, I'd slam the door shut upon leaving. I just didn't know what I'd do. When I resigned, completely spontaneously, I threw my uniform right into a rubbish bin outside the department, took a picture and posted it on Instagram. I wrote that I'd no longer want to be considered a member of a fascist's organization. Fascism wasn't talked a lot about at the time. This has changed only lately. Other officers and colleagues who saw the post asked me about what fascist organization I meant and whether I thought of them all as fascists. I answered, yes, indeed. Throwing out the uniform initiated an administrative case against me for calls to extremism. They just registered it under the wrong article. Andre has two pedagogical degrees, teaching history and physical education. After leaving the police force, he stayed in college where he would lecture while serving as an inspector. He also got a job teaching in two different schools, working seven days a week. There were other alternatives, and I'd get a lot more money had I chosen them. But I decided this was my working area. Small, but I would work with it. In fact, that's why I hadn't resigned from the Ministry of Interior Affairs before. I believed the system could be changed from within, and be it a small playground or not, I'd be digging up on authorities. I didn't care much about the salary nor did it matter that it was a morally challenging job. My initial goal was to deliver the truth to students, my own or not, but in my eyes the fairest. Such subjects as history and social studies are politicized by their nature. I thought that explicitly stating one's own opinion was not the right way. Instead, it'd be best to wrap it up like the Candina wrapper, which children would remove then. Thus, they can think for themselves and develop critical thinking. By the way, that's what national education standards prescribe, stimulate critical thinking. So I did what I was supposed to do. I used several sources, told my students that various opinions existed, and then there's a textbook. Let's have a look and compare. The Russian government has been censoring history textbooks for a while now, both deleting controversial events and proclaiming heroes who they saw fit. After the 24th of February, the censorship reached the topic of Ukraine. Editors and authors have to avoid incorrect mentions of Ukraine and Kiev. We were told to write as if Ukraine doesn't exist, one of the textbook's authors told us. When I began examining textbooks on social studies, I was surprised to stumble onto the quotes of Ivan Ilyin every once in a while. 
Ilyin is a philosopher of fascism, a man who fled from Soviet Russia to fascist Germany, embraced fascist ideology and praised Benito Mussolini's fascist Italy in his works. You've just listened to Benito Mussolini, who is considered one of the founders of Italian fascism. In his speech, Mussolini calls the Italians the bodyguards of the revolution and the fascist regime. The philosopher Ivan Ilyin was fascinated by that thought. He wrote that seizure of power by the fascists was an act of salvation. The same Ilyin who is often quoted in Russian history textbooks also stated that the national Russian dictator has to be manly enough, like Mussolini. He, the dictator, would be personally and completely responsible for all aspects of the country's political life, as the head of executive branch, main lawmaker, head judge, and the army commander. His executive powers would be unlimited. Sounds familiar. Ilyin didn't stop supporting fascism with the conclusion of the Nuremberg trials. Moreover, he kept praising Hitler even after the defeat of fascist Germany. And that's what I used to say to my students, like, kids, you need to understand who he is. This is a philosopher who inspires Putin. He likes to quote him. There were moments when he pointed out the signs of incipient fascism in our country. I noted this even before February 24th. The war came as a surprise. Like many other people, I thought this was some kind of bluff. The country's economy was in a state that we just had other things to worry about. With what money and at whose expense would we even start a war? First hour after it started, I posted a picture. The first thing that came to my mind, the painting of Verishagin, the apotheosis of war, depicting a pile of skulls. These are basically the corpses of our soldiers and ordinary civilians. Something resonated in me following February 24th. The first three or four days of the war, I kept replaying the events, watching the news till 3am, worrying for literally everyone. I was worried for our military, because I'm a former contract serviceman who served in Spetsnaz, uh, Special Designation Forces, the internal troops. I felt for Ukrainians too. I didn't pick a side then. Such a stressful situation it was. I was sleeping four or five hours a night for four days, which provoked a breakdown. The seniors, 11th grade, started a discussion about the war. At the break, I heard them say, here, our men, to our folks. And I snapped at them and said, who are our men to you? I started explaining that I'm an ex-serviceman myself, and after asking whether someone would like to join the army, a few students raised their hands, and I told them they shouldn't do it under any circumstances. I advised expressly against it, since what the army is doing is what real fascism is. What is happening now is playing wrong. It's a fratricidal war. And I advised them against defending the interests of the state, because it's not about the interests of society, but the oligarchy. I asked if there was any dissonance among the students. Some started talking about the fascists there. And I suggested we go back in history. Okay, let's have a look. There is a constant change of power there. And what about our country in your lifetime, apart from Medvedev? Was there any change of president, change of party? Everyone began smiling and laughing. So the question is, where the fascists are, here or there? Andrei would openly answer all and any of students' questions and didn't shy away from the topic of war. As a result, one of the children's parents reported him to the principal 
for anti-government propaganda. I was warned about this at school. My colleague, the social educator, came running to me, eyes widened. She said the police had come and questioned the children. Again, the headmistress said a parent had complained about me. Everyone being afraid, I asked, what were they so scared of and told them not to worry about me? I knew I hadn't done anything particularly illegal. The article on discrediting the armed forces was implemented only at a later point. Then, a colleague from the criminal investigation department called me and said they needed to interview me because I had been complained about. When I came in for questioning, it turned out that they were looking at two cases against teachers and former police officers in one day. Obviously, I wasn't the only one having wrong views. You've just listened to a school student at her commencement saying no to war, freedom to Ukraine, and Putin is a devil just before someone takes the microphone from her hands. That's not a unique instance. According to several sociological researches, most young people in Russia, 18 to 29, do not support the war. There is a very clear dynamic. The younger the demographic gets, the lower is the support. Andrei also puts his faith in the younger generations. If you want to learn more about how such sociological researches work in Russia today, and why the numbers cannot be taken at face value, please listen to our episode with the sociologist Because my school career didn't last long, I didn't befriend many teachers. I, however, made friends with all the students. An example could be the gymnasium where I worked at. I continued pushing my agenda and openly discussing the war for another week after the complaint had been filed against me. I am positive that the children's support for the war is nearing zero. There are certainly some children who are developmentally unready to understand. If they are told they need to form a Z for fun, they won't understand what it's about. They don't have this kind of awareness. Gymnasium students are more advanced, though. Many of them are drawing information from different sources. There is a boy I keep in touch with, the son of a federal judge. He continues to support me. In each class I had three to four students who were born in Ukraine and even went to school there. Then there are children from Donbass who say, I'm doing everything right. There was a girl, top marks in all subjects but mine, and I used to lower her grades, telling her she'd have to try harder next term. I thought she couldn't stand me, and yet she wrote me a letter And she said that my words had resonated in her soul and she regretted that I'd left the school. I've got hopes for the next generation, especially in the Far East. Contrary to Andrei's hopes for the future, the government seems to be aiming at the best. A few initiatives and programs have been recently introduced that scream of the USSR. A new youth movement, a variation on communist pioneer movement, without the communism this time making students write letters to support the wounded soldiers who fought in Ukraine and are now rehabilitating, and the mandatory singing of the national anthem every morning at schools. As I see it, there has been an ongoing process of duping the population. The standards of education, particularly of higher education, are deteriorating. Modern students don't read books. In the best-case scenario, they get their information from the Internet. Another issue is the alcoholization of the population. I worked with troubled families. The main problem 
is that parents in these families consume excessive amounts of alcohol. That said, they have a lot of children too. Three, sometimes five. In my opinion, those who support our government and the war are generally people with low intelligence. They don't read books, but watch TV. Yet the lower a person's intelligence, the more susceptible they are to outside propaganda. Hence, the state policy, less investment in education, more benefits for the current government. I tried to change this within my working space, but there wasn't enough time. One of the active police officers told Andrei in secret that the FSB was ordered to change his administrative case to a criminal offense. The officer claimed that Andrei's name was brought up in the Yakutia Ministry of Internal Affairs multiple times, and that even the minister himself hinted that Andrei must be persecuted as a traitor. He was to be made into a cautionary tale for others. Andrei told me he didn't really believe his friend at first. However, soon he noticed a strange man hanging out by the entrance to his building, most likely a FSB officer. Andrei wanted to be sure that he was followed, so he intentionally went to a few stores and neighborhoods with very little food traffic, and the man would follow. Having little doubt left, Andrei faced the FSB officer, asking if the officer would drive him around. It would be easier to follow that way. The officer got scared and left. After the incident, Andrei felt very unsettled and afraid for his freedom, so he decided to leave the country and move to Turkey. When we spoke, he didn't want to name his oppositional colleagues in case the FSB would listen to this episode. Andrei knows all the ins and outs of how the police work in Russia and what kind of danger anyone who opposes the government views can be in. Yet he wasn't afraid to speak his mind. I asked him what an ordinary person can do in today's Russia to make a difference. Take a smaller area of work. Deal with what you have. Just be more cautious. Inside Nazi Germany, some people continued to fight. I know a guy. He works for a company that has army contracts. So what he does, he makes sure the company has as few of such contracts as possible. He sabotages. These are real options. Commit sabotage. Promote your views among relatives and friends. Talk in person more often. Use closed communication channels, including when at work. Finally, if there is an imminent threat to your life, freedom or health, the escape way has not been sealed yet. You can try it as I did myself. Thank you for listening to The Russian Resistance. Follow us on any of the podcast platforms you use, give us a rating, and share with your friends. It really helps us keep going and bring you more stories and perspectives from inside Russia.